0: You are listening to Uncommentary. So I want to talk to you about one of my favorite bookstores. Hearts and Minds Books is located in Pennsylvania. I've never been there, but I met the owner, Byron Borger, online, I think via Twitter. And um, I want to tell you why I use Hearts and Minds as often as I can. Uh, First, I'm a huge fan of independent booksellers. Uh, You know as well as I that when the great behemoth Amazon finally uh, began its quest to take over the world, um, that it is easy to order from Amazon, have the books delivered directly to your door. Uh, But over the course of several years, as Amazon was growing a lot of independent booksellers, mom-and-pop type shops, uh, they really suffered, and many of them went out of business. Well, there's been a resurgence, and I'm really glad about that. Uh, And one of my favorites is Hearts uh, Hearts and Minds Books, And so if you'll go to heartsandmindsbooks.com, now this is what's simple about it. You're not going to see an inventory page. You're not going to see, uh, you don't shop on heartsandmindsbooks.com in the way that you would at say being at barnesandnoble.com. Um, basically go to the inquiry page, uh, and you can send a message to Byron and ask is a certain book available. Now they have hundreds of thousands of titles they can get, but that's where you start. Um, then you can go to the order page and you literally type in the name of the book that you want and the author, whether you want hardback or paperback, uh, and they'll respond to you and let you know what the availability is, uh, how much shipping is going to be for your shipping options. Uh, and you say, well, doesn't that take a little bit of extra time? It does take a little bit of extra time. So if you need your book tomorrow, this may not be the route that you want to go, although they can ship overnight. But when you know you have some books coming up, whether they're textbooks or whether there's some other books, unless it's a special order or a self-published type of title that are harder to get, uh, if it's a normal book, uh, they can probably locate it for you. So you can go to the inquiry form and ask. Then you go to the order form and type in the information and uh, respond to all the information they ask for, and uh, they'll get back with you. And if you mention uncommentary in the uh, order blank, then uh, you'll get 20% off any title. You can also subscribe to the book notes where they feature several books uh, in each note with reviews, and you can order those through booksandheartsandminds.com uh, as well. Uh, but I really encourage you to check them out, especially if, um, if only 10% of your book orders uh, you switch over to, to them. That'll be huge for them, and it won't cost you that much more. Uh, and I'm trying to do at least that. And so uh, I encourage you, heartsandminds.com, and mention Uncommentary Podcast for a 20% discount on most items, and they'll let you know when it applies. Well, I'm really happy to welcome to Uncommentary today the housewife theologian, Amy Bird. Amy is an author, speaker, blogger, podcaster, former, what was the name of your coffee shop that you formerly owned?
1: The Mud Puddle.
0: The Mud Puddle? Mm Mm-hmm. You know that that would not make me want to come in. I'm just going to be honest with you. What? No, it would you not. Never
1: heard of coffee being called a cup of mud.
0: No. What? No, I never. Seriously, I've ne- I've been drinking coffee forever. I've never heard it referred to that way. Where are you from? Are you from like Ethiopia or somewhere?
1: <laughs> no, I'm from Frederick, Maryland. It was a fun a fun name. Mud had two D's in it, and our logo was a uh, this really adorable little piggy, and a coffee
0: cup, taking a bath. Oh, my word. Did you roast your own? <laughs> did y'all roast your beans in-house?
1: No, we didn't roast our beans.
0: Okay. Well, I have to question whether you were actually a coffee shop owner if you didn't roast your beans. <laughs> you, well, were, we did have a coffee shop
1: nearby that roasted their
0: own beans. <laughs> uh, so were you the housewife theologian before that book published in 2013? Before, Well, I
1: the book itself is what, you know, kind of for
0: the blog. Okay. So oh, okay. The okay.
1: They kind
0: of came out at the same time. Gotcha. Okay. Then theological fitness, then no little women. Then why mm-hmm. can't we be friends? It's like mm-hmm. uh, these things are happening so frequently. It's like you just turn your devotional journal into books. I wish I could do that. <laughs>
1: I don't have a devotional journal, so I guess that's <laughs> what's going on, I think, uh, out loud or in my in my writing.
0: And then lastly, and most recently, I guess last month or uh, just in the last few weeks, um, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, How the Church Needs to Rediscover Her Purpose. Your articles have appeared in First Things, Table Talk, Modern Reformation, By Faith, New Horizons, Ordained Servant, Harvest USA, Credo Magazine, and you've been quoted in, the, uh, in Christianity Today in the Atlantic, co-host of Mortification of Spend podcast for the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, where you blog as well. Uh, you're married, you have three kids. Amy Bird, welcome to Uncommentary.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood, you're, uh, you're just like a heretic, right?
1: Yeah, basically. Um, I am ruining <laughs> complementarianism in the Reformed churches everywhere.
0: <laughs> Little old you, I'm telling you.
1: With my hidden agenda.
0: That's right. <laughs> With your hidden agenda, which regularly appears in blogs, podcasts, and book form. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Okay.
2: Um,
0: so, yeah. so first of all, I want to say um, I love the cover. Uh, you make a, you. You we'll make a deal in the beginning of your book about covers on Bibles, which we'll get to in just a second. But the cover's really well done. Uh, it's very attractive. It's very appealing. Um, I, I realize that there's a yellow wallpaper story involved, and you're going to have to talk about that because I honestly skipped over that part. Um <laughs> In my, in my rush to be familiar with the book for this podcast, I skipped over the introduction.
1: <laughs> oh, you have to read the introduction. Go back and do that later.
0: I know, but because I you, want you to, to talk about you a better
1: understanding of what you're reading. Yes,
0: that's why I want you to explain. Why is there torn yellow wallpaper on the cover of your book?
1: Yeah, okay. So first of all, yeah, I was really happy with Monderman's design for the book. Um, it did an excellent job, and it, it really does speak to um, – kind of a, a metaphor I use throughout the book based on an 18th century novella called The Yellow Wallpaper. And um, it's a, I don't want to give the whole story of The Yellow Wallpaper, but um, uh, the woman who wrote it uh, was diagnosed with this, uh, this, it was kind of like a nervous, quote unquote, disease or whatever that they labeled at the time as neurasthenia.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, kind of, saying that the modern lifestyle, like, you can't keep up the pace with the modern lifestyle, so you get this nervous disease. And for women, it was treated differently from men. They were put on rest therapy and, and unable to do anything intellectually or socially stimulating. Um, what she really had was postpartum depression, but uh, that wasn't properly diagnosed at the time. Right. So the rest the rest therapy obviously um, worked against her cure. The cure was actually harming her more. So she writes this very disturbing novella um, where the yellow wallpaper kind of becomes a symbol of the kind of the patriarchal structures that are inhibiting uh, women at the time from good medical care and uh, intellectual stimulation and interaction and all those other things. And um, so I use the yellow wallpaper as a metaphor um, and, of kind of some of the blind spots that we have in the church today. Mm. And at the end of each chapter, I have this kind of peel and reveal section because the woman in the, in the novella is peeling away at this yellow wallpaper. She actually thinks there's like, she's becoming crazy, driven crazy. And, um, she thinks there's a woman trapped behind it. Oh Um, yeah, it's really disturbing book. It's really interesting, powerful, but, um, I'm surprised. I'm, I'm
0: frankly surprised. Jordan Peele hasn't made a movie about this already.
1: Yeah, I, I, it would be an excellent movie. Maybe there is a movie out there. I don't even know. Um, but so I do. I use this as a metaphor, just that um, you know, if we peel away some of these blind spots in the church, um, we're, we're not going to have an ugly wall behind it, or the whole structure of complementarianism is not going to fall apart. But we're going to see something much more beautiful and rich revealed in Scripture and God's Word about the design of men and women, and, and particularly as it relates to discipleship, which is mm-hmm. what my book's about. I've received a lot of pushback, though, um, because the author of The Yellow Wallpaper was a very active feminist.
0: Oh, do tell.
1: So, since I am using a metaphor from, from a book written by a feminist, and I'm also saying that her book was good, um. Therefore, I must be a feminist.
0: Well, I mean, and I liked 1984. Does that make me a socialist? And I liked, um, you know, <laughs> Animal Farm. Does that make me a so? I mean, what in the world?
1: I, that is the, that is definitely kind of a, the logic, and I don't understand it. I'm a writer. I'm going to take yeah. a good metaphor when <laughs> I see
0: one. So, um, on a, I mean, obviously, for uh, for evangelicals, this can be a, a complex type of a conversation. So let's set two. I'm going to let you set two definitions right now that we can work from uh, as we move forward. Uh, First one is obviously complementarianism. The second one is patriarchy or patriarchalism. So set some Mm -hmm. definitions for that, uh, for those two words that we can use in this conversation. So at least we have a baseline and people listen, they say, okay, we have a framework for knowing what's being talked about.
1: Well, defining complementarianism there's so many different ways that people define it now. Um, you know, I, I say in the book that I no longer feel comfortable calling myself a complementarian because it's so attached to a movement, yeah. a contemporary movement that, uh, and I show in the book, has a lot of unorthodox, what well, it has, it's based on an unorthodox teaching of the Trinity. Right. And it also has kind of Aristotelian um, views of men and women. So, I would not connect myself with any of, you know, with, with their definition. And so I prefer to call myself confessional. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what people, many people are wanting to know when they use the word complimentarian is how do you feel about male headship in the church and the home? And, and to that I would answer, um, yes, I do see that men have a certain responsibility in their homes. Um, and in the, in the church, I, I do uphold male-only ordination, but I do want to highlight qualified male-only yeah, exactly. ordination. Exactly. I mean, like 98% of men are not called to be church officers either. Yeah.
0: So, yeah um, I, I always hesitate when somebody wants to have a women in ministry conversation and they haven't had a men in ministry conversation yet. <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't. And I think this is where many complementarians are upset with me, but I don't um, promote some sort of blanket authority that all men have over all women in discipleship.
0: Yeah. Um, So, and then
1: patriarchy then would be basically male rule, which I find very different from, you know, what I would want to see in a complementarity relationship, Mm -hmm. you know, and even in marriage, in Ephesians five, um, it's shocking for Paul to tell men to love their wives. He's not telling them to rule over their wives. Um, so this male rule, you know, that's what we see in Genesis three, which was a, a bad consequence from the fall.
0: Right. Um, okay. So we have we have those uh, those set. Um, so in American life anyway, uh the CBMW the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood uh they are uh, but I guess between Dr. Piper and Dr. Grudem they're, they're kind of the originators of the uh, the word if not the idea of complementarianism. Is that right?
1: Well, sort of. They're the ones who claimed it for themselves and for their movement. Okay. It actually was a word being used in egalitarianism. Okay. I think they are the originators of the words, and uh, yeah, C. B. M. W. The Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood kind of co-opted it for themselves, and uh, and so yeah, it becomes kind of attached and defined by them.
0: So you see, uh, right off the bat, in after we get uh, after we pass the yellow wallpaper uh, metaphor explanation that you use to set the stage. You're right mm-hmm. in, You're right into the differences between men's and women's devotional Bibles or men's and women's study Bibles um, mm-hmm. and the content. Uh, and and I don't know that you use the word marketing. I've already admitted that I haven't done a deep dive yet. But <laughs> clearly some of this is marketing. You talk about women's Bible covers uh, mm-hmm. and, and what just the cover communicates versus a man's Bible cover that's more hardy uh, mm-hmm. looking and more raw and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Talk a little bit about your concerns about what how Bibles are designed today to, um, to relate or to appeal to specific genders and what that does to us when it relates to discipleship.
1: Right. So uh, if a radical feminist makes their claim to us that the Bible is this patriarchal document put together by the most powerful uh, men to subordinate women, we balk at that right? Mm-hmm. But uh, I believe we're sending the exact same message with the resources that we're marketing to men and women, that the, the Bible is so male-authored that women need our own resources to be able to relate to it well. Mm. And in those resources, we see first in the design of them, um, you know, the women's books uh, have these soft uh, feminine colors with um, flowers,
0: yeah, the fleur imprinted fruity, on the cover.
1: Fruity designs. And even our women's Bibles, like, have this so that, you know, our husbands would be embarrassed to be carrying it around, <laughs> you know? And um, but and it's weird, too, to me. It's a contrast, a clash between uh, what this Bible looks like and the message that's inside of it, because mm-hmm. <laughs> there's some pretty gory stuff. Right. Um. Inside of the Bible, so it's it's just so weird to have that pretty cover. I think on it, but then um, you know when I take a kind of a close look, examining the men's and women's study Bibles put out by Crossway, which is you know a more reputable um, Reformed publisher. But even there, we see these different messages in the um, in the articles and the contributors. So the women's devotional Bible has topics such as the church and women at risk eating disorders, and other destructive behaviors, missional living, emotional health, forgiveness, healing, and shame. However, the Men's devotional Bible articles are on leadership, a man's inner life, and why regard self-control as the one essential ingredient to biblical manhood, life in the local church, calling, pornography, a man's work. So when I put these side by side, I see that the articles targeted to, to the women Predominantly address weakness and victimhood, mm-hmm. and the men's are more about leadership and agency. Um, even when it talks about their struggles, like pornography, like that's how they treat women.
0: I uh, so, I, I read that list to sonia that's my wife, this morning, mm-hmm. and uh, I wish you could have seen the look that she was giving me as, <laughs> as I read that list of of uh, the yeah, articles. From, I, and she was like, had an eyebrow cocked up, and is like, "Are you serious?"
1: Yeah, it's shocking when you put them side by side like that. And then the contributors in the woman's Bible um, who are writing the articles are both men and women, which, great, that's wonderful. I think we should pull from both male and female authors and Bible teachers and um, pastors as well and scholars. But um, the men's devotional Bible only has male contributors.
0: Wow. So So, no Amy Bird article in the male Bible, the men's Bible?
1: (laughs) Well, I'm sure there's uh, many better women to write and contribute (laughs) than myself, but um, it's just odd, you know, it kind of sends the message that men don't have anything to learn from women authors or or Bible teachers or, you know, just their perspective on these things.
0: Which is weird because every year uh, on the Sunday that is approaching as we record this podcast, we honor our mothers, uh, I guess most of whom Mm -hmm. are women. (laughs) <laughs> um, with, you know, with the idea of, uh, of how they taught us and what we learned from them and the, le- mm-hmm. the life lessons that we learned, which apparently stopped when guys turn 18 and we no longer have to learn from uh, any of the women in our lives because we're men at that point. And I, it, it just, there's a, there's a lot of self-contradictoriness in this, it seems like to me.
1: Right. And, um, it just sends, I think a very disturbing message then to, you know, to us as men and women as disciples.
0: So you write on page forty three, gonna uh, this. I think this is in the same framework of what we're talking about. I'm um, building on a fascinating book, Gospel Women: Studies of the Named Women in the Gospels. Balkum, the author of that book, mm-hmm. makes the case that radical feminists are wrong in regarding the canon of scripture quote as a hopelessly patriarchal construction end quote. The women from whom we hear in the scriptures as a whole are not merely tokens thrown in as props, accidental vestiges that somehow slipped through the canonical process without getting suppressed, nor are the accounts of these women a patronizing general recognition of the contribution of women. Balcom's book respects, quote, the fact that these women and their stories are remarkable for their peculiarity rather than for their typicality or representativeness, unquote. Uh, Unpack Mm -hmm. that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So I unpacked it in like three chapters, but, um, <laughs>
0: you go, three sentences, go ahead.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, welcome. I am building off of his fascinating work in gospel women, where he kind of shows the function of the female voice in some ways in scripture that, you know, unlike what the radical feminists are saying, we don't need to look outside of scripture, um, to have the female voice, that it's, In scripture, there's female literature in scripture, which is amazing when you think of the patriarchal, um, culture of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, just how much we see the woman's voice in scripture and, and how that functions often to tell us the story behind the story Mm -hmm. that's going on or to make visible the invisible. And it's really fascinating too. And, and you know, he does some, some work in Ruth, so I build off of that as well. And, um, talk about some other ones in Scripture, which he calls, and I have definitely gotten a lot of slack for using his term, gynocentric interruption, <laughs> where, where the female voice interrupts the dominant male voice in Scripture. Uh, it's a great term. I mean, it's so fabulous. And of course, my husband, who loves, like, whenever I say something like academic like that, he'll use it in the wrong context for the rest of the day. Oh, that's so, awesome, yeah. He's had a lot of fun with the term gynocentric interruption. <laughs> but, uh, but back to what I was saying, um, yeah, so he shows how, and, and this is to me that the, the wonderful part that we can hold fast to here, is that women, too, in Scripture are traitors to the faith. We are actively traditioning, passing down the faith, mm. and you see that over and over in Scripture, and um, he uses the, the book of Ruth, though, as kind of a prime example
2: of that.
0: You're listening to Uncommentary. My guest today is Amy Bird, author of Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and we'll be back right after this. So what does it take to keep Uncommentary on the air? Uh, Technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, There's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling, and there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, It's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Uh, If you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as two bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20 ounce Coke one time a month, and you can become a a $2 a month contributor supporter level. Uh, If you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug. Uh, and these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got like money to spare and you want to give two fifty a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot. And uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentary pod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentary pod or Patreon is monthly. And these are uh, auto drafts. So you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone. And really, uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. All right, we're back with Amy bird, uh, Maybe a couple weeks ago, my wife was reading in Esther. She's probably, we've been married for 35 or six years and, um, 36 this year. Um, thank you. And she's probably read the Bible through at least a dozen times since we've been married. Mm -hmm. Um, and she's just one of these that it starts and generally starts in Genesis reads straight through and then does it over again, does it over again. Um, and she said to me, she was reading in Esther. And um, mm-hmm. she said, isn't it interesting that God used a pagan woman to save his people? Mm. And uh, I, th- I thought for a second, because we always say Esther, God used Esther to save his people, which is true. But the, pr- the, the process of events or the motion that was set in place started with Vashti refusing to mm-hmm. be um, an object of uh, objectification and lust from mm-hmm. her drunken husband and his drunken buddies. Mm-hmm. And so when she refused, uh, the, the king got, uh, got, you know, the, his guys together and decided what he needed to do. And basically he defrocked her and set her back yep. among the commoners. And then he had the virginity sweepstakes so he could find the new queen. <laughs> And there's one for your husband to use. Um, Yeah. uh, And and so then Esther comes up, and we know the story following that. But Esther Uh was elevated to queen as a result of Vashti directly defying not only the king, but her husband um, Uh when he requested of her something that was improper. Um, So what do we miss? Um, So I'd never thought about that. I'd always gone straight to Esther because she's the heroine of the story. Um, mm-hmm. what do we miss when we don't listen to how women see, and I could give you other examples, but w- when men are pastors, don't take into consideration, don't learn from women, wh- what's the uniqueness of how we approach scripture that we lose when we don't hear from women as they have read and studied the scriptures? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think, um, that's such a good example that, that your wife's talking about and and it kind of takes me back to Ruth again, who also, you know, was a Moabite.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and we get, and she's in, she's named <laughs> in the line of Christ, yeah. which is truly amazing. But um, what Balcom kind of addresses in answering that question, really, and highlighting it is at the end of Ruth, you have this kind of, uh, it looks almost like it's cut and paste at the end. the whole It goes from a narrative to this cut and paste uh, patrilineal genealogy. Mm. It's like the male voice is entered back in. And, um, it kind of is is put there like that. He says to show us the inadequacy of just the male voice, because it's the same story as what we just read in the narrative of Ruth. But, you know, in the male, the the male way of doing it is just a patrilineal genealogy. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, you're missing a lot of the richness, a lot of what is um, invisible to you, because we all have these blind spots um, of, of what's going on, and how God then is His of love is showing forth even in the, this this Moabite woman and and in Naomi. Um, you know, the big question in Ruth is: Does God keep His promises?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, how does He treat those He loves? Um, and And it's answered so beautifully uh, by the women kind of handing down the story. So um, what we have then in Scripture with the male and female voice is this dynamic reciprocity, this synergism. Um, And if we only have the male voice, we're missing that reciprocity. We're missing the dynamism then of moving forward. you know, male and female are to face one another, to even understand one another as male and female. And when we can both contribute, it's fruitful. Um, it, it produces something else, a third thing. So um, I, I feel like we're missing kind of a huge point of it all. If we just have one dimensional male or one dimensional female voices, which a lot of our biblical manhood and womanhood resources do.
0: So then why isn't our aim? You say, why our aim is not biblical manhood and womanhood. What is our aim then, if if that's not it?
1: Right. Um, We don't have that given to us in Scripture that our aim is so-called biblical manhood and womanhood. Like, we're created man and woman, (laughs) and uh, there's some parts in Scripture that directly address us. Um, Not a whole lot of parts, actually, but some, which is, you know, nice. We can take those and learn from them. But our aim throughout Scripture is the same as men and women, and that is um, communion, eternal communion with the triune God. And the amazing thing is that maybe people don't want to hear this, and what woman herself in creation reveals um, is our aim is, is a bit feminine. <laughs> it's to be the bride of Christ
0: collectively. Mm. Interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, there's also a masculine aim to it as well, sons in the sun. So I feel like we learn from that together um, what that means.
0: I think there's been over the years, and I know this was true in my case for a long time, that we, uh, we haven't really um, taken into consideration the, uh, the broad way, the, the all-inclusive way that God describes himself in Scripture, Uh, as embodying, not embodying, but as containing, uh, being the originator of actually, uh, all of the emotive and, um, genderish aspects that we divide up or think of typically as men and women. So we think of, uh, women as mothering. Well, Jesus, you know, God is revealed in scripture as a hen who protects her chicks, Uh, Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that God is female, but it does mean that the origination of all Mm -hmm. these emotions and and modes and whatever that men and women experience together are all in God, perfectly in harmony and balance and all those things. Um, And so because of that, we've tended, I think, to view some of God's attributes uh, from how we understand emotion and whatnot as male characteristics and others as female characteristics and then we sometimes look at men or women and say, well, he's kind of feminine or she's kind of masculine Right. when God himself contains all of these types of characteristics that we, re- that we can read about in scripture. Um, and that has created a, a false dichotomy of what humanity is when empowered by God, because there's going to be times that I cry. There are going to be times that I uh, am emotional for no reason whatsoever that I can think of. Um, mm-hmm. but most people would say that's how a women, that's how a woman behaves. Uh, women cry for no reason, not men. Men don't cry for no reason. Men don't even cry. Well, Jesus wept. <laughs> I mean, for crying out loud, right, you know, right, to, to right. stretch the metaphor to its breaking point. Um, so, uh, so is that kind of what you're talking about? Let's look at what scripture says about maleness and femaleness and discipleship rather than constructs that kind of pigeonhole everything
1: right. I think that that reduces us to do that. I mean, I think that's what you're describing there. And I'm not saying that, you know, I do think we can affirm some cultural norms associated with our gender, but we don't need to hold these as like essential Mm. to our sexuality. Mm. Um, And I do think it, it harms those who, and and feeds uh, into those who do struggle with uh, gender identity and sexuality when we are quick to say that this man is effeminate for being sensitive, yeah. when you know those are actually um, often fruits of the spirit yeah. <laughs> that we are all called to. Yeah. Or that you know a woman's being masculine because she is a welder. <laughs> you know, it's it's okay. A woman can do that for her vocation and and not question her femininity.
0: Well, we celebrate women as welders when they're doing it for the war effort.
1: Well, that depends on which complementarians you're
0: talking about. I mean, Rosie the Riveter now, you know, we hold her up as a paragon of sacrifice and whatever. But um, so you end uh, end your book with a chapter called When Paul Passes Phoebe the Baton. What do we got going on Mm -hmm. there?
1: So I kind of get to Romans 16, which I believe is just a beautiful picture. It's like a snapshot of the fruit of the ministry and all the theology that he teaches in and, and the letter to the Romans, um, and, and, where he's greeting, uh, the people there. And, you know, he starts by, uh, kind of introducing Phoebe as his prosthesis and as the, the envoy, the deliverer of this epistle, which is fascinating because uh, she clearly wasn't going to be traveling alone. That would have been unsafe to do. Um, And to be the official envoy of the letter has to have some meaning to it there, um, that he has communicated to her well what's being taught in this letter, because there's there's no FaceTime. (laughs) They can't even easily write a letter, you know, has anyone read Romans without having questions? (laughs) So clearly Paul is anticipating some serious questions and, you know, trying to hold together these (laughs) Roman churches and who does he get authorized to deliver this letter? Yeah. A woman. That is truly amazing. So he invested in her clearly to be able to convey, you know, some interpretation there for some of the questions that are going to be asked. And um, what I kind of do is, I, I you know, I call that Paul passing Phoebe the baton in a sense. Um, I'm not saying that she's to go lead these churches in Rome, but she's probably going to be answering questions from some of the leaders yeah. of the churches. So um, in doing that, um, what was Paul thinking about? The slippery slope? <laughs> Which is, you know, the argument I get all the time, right? the slippery slope if we start talking about women um, having any function, even in the lay ministry, as teaching yeah. where men are involved. I, sort, but, of, I um, sort
0: of commend to you, my servant, Phoebe.
1: Yes. <laughs> but be careful. Yeah, watch your back. She's going to try to take over the church. <laughs> no, so basically I'm showing, like, here is Phoebe given entrusted with this wonderful epistle to the romans and we know what happens i mean the whole reformation starts from this letter um but uh and the team's able to do that and we think of ourselves now we are we now have all of scripture not just you know this one epistle that you're you're entrusted with but we're each lay person each disciple is entrusted with all of Scripture, and we are all to be treasonous of the faith. Mm. We're all to communicate God's Word well with one another, like Phoebe did. Um, and we are all to do that for the purpose of being able to commune together, to hold uh, in common God's Word and, and to fellowship in that, like Phoebe did. So that's what I'm kind of concluding with, is that we all have this great message right at our fingertips, and we all have a great message honor and responsibility to
0: communicate that well. My guest today on the commentary has been Amy Byrd, author of Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, How the Church Needs to Rediscover Her Purpose. You can pick it up. Uh, it's out now, right? I mean, you're already on. It's on the market, yep. right? Yeah,
1: it's out now. Okay. This week.
0: So it'll be linked in the episode notes. You can find it easily at Amazon and wherever else you buy books. Uh, I recommend Hearts and Minds. Or order it from Hearts and Minds Books if you get a chance. Uh, you're, on, uh, you're on Twitter, but I don't remember your handle right offhand.
1: My handle is Amy Bird H-W-T, for housewife theologian.
0: And it's A-I-M-E-E-B-Y-R-D because she wants it to be easy to spell.
1: <laughs> hey, that's my parents' problem, <laughs> not mine.
0: It's true. <laughs> uh, and your your uh, your blog is Housewife Theologian, right?
1: Yes, HousewifeTheologian.com.
0: Fantastic. All right, everybody, check it out. And Amy, thanks so much for reading with me today.
1: Thanks for having me on, Marty.
0: As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Pod. Please rate and review, and whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uncom- uh, on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the, uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, soledeo gloria. This is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast.